Hear the word of the Lord from John 15, 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. Someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Amen? Amen. At my childhood home in Indiana, there was an apple tree in the backyard. And I remember when we moved to that house, my parents were so excited to have an apple tree on the property. And I think they had visions of grandeur of all of us kids playing outside and, and going to that tree uh, to receive a snack and even of my mother uh, gathering those apples in season and using them for cobblers and pies. You know, the only problem was that every single apple that grew from that tree was disgusting. <laughs> That tree grew terrible fruit, and the apples were always hard, never ripening to uh, an edible texture. And my mother's attempts to bake with those apples always yielded a disgusting sort of mutated cobbler or pie. And so my parents gave up on that apple it became a burden. I remember as a kid, the apples would fall from that tree onto the ground, and they would rot on the ground. They would stink, and insects would gather and eat uh, from the fruit that those apples produced. And they tended to draw large numbers of bees around those rotten, disgusting apples. And who do you think it was that had to clean up those apples week by week? Forty-year-old Dave here, the oldest son, was the one who constantly was picking up all that trash. And that's why I was so delighted the day my father took a chainsaw to that apple tree. And he cut it down to the stump. And the 
wood dried, and then my father burnt every single remnant of that disgusting apple tree. And I was never more pleased to see the ugly thing go. In John chapter 15, Jesus uses the agricultural metaphor of a vine, doesn't he? Jesus is the true vine, and his disciples are the branches. Fruitful branches, every fruitful branch is pruned by the Father, the vine dresser, for the purpose that it will bear more fruit. But every vine that does not bear fruit, rather than being pruned, is plucked. And it is removed from the Father's vineyard, and it is gathered up, and it is, it is a, a vine, it is withers up and dies and is cast into the fire, Jesus says in this passage of Scripture. He tells his disciples that apart from him, they can do what? What's Jesus say? Apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. That's right, Jesus says. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm the vine, you are the branches, and if they are going to bear fruit, who do they have to be connected to? have to be connected to the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. Apart from Jesus, the disciples are useless and fruitless. Connected to Jesus, they will bear much fruit and be useful in the kingdom of God. And in our passage today, in verses 9 through 17, we learn what causes that fruit to grow. It is love, Jesus explains. Love in this passage is it's like the fertile soil that provides the nutrients that Christians need to grow spiritual fruit in their life. Love is like the sap that flows through a tree that provides life to its fruit. Love is the juice in the fruit that makes the juice taste sweet rather than it being useless and disgusting. Without love for Jesus and from Jesus, we as Christians are useless and fruitless, aren't we? We're not good for anything. And we might have impressive gifts and abilities, but they don't glorify God. And without love, those gifts and abilities are nothing more than a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal, the Apostle Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 13. Like the apple tree at my childhood home, the fruit we grow will not glorify God or benefit others if we're not connected to the vine and if we don't have love from Him and for Him coursing through our souls. So we learn that if we abide in Jesus' love, we will bear much fruit. Your life and my life will glorify God, and it will bless others, and God will use our fruit. But we have to abide in His love. If you abide in Jesus' love, you will bear much fruit. That's the promise from this passage of Scripture today. Well, what kind of fruit will we grow? That's a good question, isn't it? Jesus tells us in this passage that there are two kinds of fruit that we will grow 
if we are connected to his love, with his love coursing through our veins. Number one, if we abide in Jesus' love, we will grow the fruit of joyful obedience. If we abide in his love, we will grow the fruit of joyful obedience. Look with me at verse 9. Before Jesus calls his disciples to obedience, what does Jesus explain to them? Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. He is grounding their obedience to him in his love for them. And he explains that the manner in which he loves his disciples has been demonstrated and is like and akin to the love that he's received from who? From the Father. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And as unfathomable as that is, Jesus calls upon his disciples to consider. Just think for a moment now of the love that is shared between the Father and the Son. It's an eternal love, isn't it? It is a love that knew no beginning. It is, it is a love where Jesus is considered one of a kind, completely unique, the only begotten Son of the Father, the object upon whom the Father has poured out His love, and the Son, in return, pours out His what? His fruitful obedience to the Father. The Father delights in the Son, for the Son always bears the fruit of righteousness and holiness and obedience to His Father's will. And so the Father takes delight in the Son. And as He takes delight in the Son, He magnifies the Son, as we learn in the New Testament. He exalts the Son. He glorifies the Son because the Son, in His love for the Father, perfectly obeys and bears fruit that glorifies the Father. In His love, the Father elects a people and chooses them and gives them to the Son. Why does He do that? Because He loves the Son. And Jesus, in return for that love, He makes a covenant that He will do what? That He will go and accomplish redemption for those whom the Father has given them. And this is the kind of love that Jesus tells His disciples He has for them. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. It's an eternal love. It's an unfathomable love. It is a love that is completely unique. It is a, a love that will lead Jesus to the cross. And because of this love, Jesus tells his disciples, look with me at verse 9, what does he call them to do? Abide in my love. It is the greatest love the world has ever known, and Jesus calls his disciples to abide in that love. What does it mean to abide in Jesus' love? J.C. Ryle comments on this, that to abide in this love means to keep up a habit of constant, close communion with him. To be always leaning on Him, resting on Him, pouring out our hearts on Him, and using Him as our fountain of life and strength. 
as our chief companion and best friend. To have his words abiding in us is to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds and to make them the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. What does it mean to abide in Jesus' love? It means that your whole life is built on the foundation of Jesus' love. It means that every decision that you make as a Christian is considered in the love of Jesus. And that the way that you think about God and the way that you think about others is absolutely informed by the love that Jesus has for you. And that is the love that Jesus calls his disciples to abide in. Consider Jesus' words then in verse 10. Once they properly understand his love for them, that it is akin to the love that the Father has for the Son. Once they understand that, Jesus then calls them to obedience. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Let me ask you a question. Was Jesus the Son because He earned the Father's love through obedience? Absolutely not. Jesus is the Father's Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, eternally loved by the Father, not because of His obedience, but because of the Father's love for Him and because of His love for the Father. Likewise, Christians are loved by the Father, not because of their obedience to the Father or to the Son. That is not why God loves you, dear Christian. But obedience is what characterizes the Christian's life. And so Jesus is calling them here to know that if they keep His commandments, they are abiding in His love. They are demonstrating in the fruit of obedience, through the fruit of obedience in their life, that they love the Father, that they love Jesus, and that they have become the object of His love as well. D.A. Carson says, if we are the recipients of Jesus' love, in a way analogous to his own reception of his Father's love, we must remain in Jesus' love by exactly the same means by which he always remained in his Father's love. Because Jesus loved the Father, he always obeyed the Father, didn't he? And we as Christians, because of our love for Jesus, we ought always to do what? Obey him as well, and keep His commandments, and thereby abide in His love. Jesus' obedience to the Father becomes the perfect standard by which we are to measure our own obedience. We are to strive for perfection, is what Jesus is saying, just as He has always kept obedience to the Father. In turn, the fruit then that grows out of the foundation of love and an effort to abide in that love and to keep His commandments, the fruit is joy. Look at verse 11. The reason that Jesus has been telling him this is what? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Well, what kind of joy did Jesus have? 
Jesus' joy was to do what? To obey his father. Does the scripture say in Hebrews that for the what? Set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It was the son's delight to obey his father's will. For Jesus' obedience to God was not drudgery. For Jesus' obedience to God, it, it, it wasn't the sort of burden that, that cast him down. This wasn't begrudging obedience on Jesus' behalf or part to his Father's will. No, he happily submitted to his Father's will. He joyfully submitted to his Father's will. And Jesus says the reason that he is telling his disciples these things is so that kind of joy can be in Christians too. So that our obedience to Jesus that our obedience to His commands, that our obedience to the Father is not burdensome, but filled with joy where we desire to keep the Father's will. What does it mean to keep Jesus' commandments? You see that word there? To keep. To keep. If you keep my commandments. This word can be used for the action of guarding something. Like a prison, keeping in custody and keeping watch. It can be used for the action of protecting, so as to keep something unharmed behind an enclosure. The word can also be used for the action of observing, to fulfill, as in to take note of, in order to be in strict compliance. And so when we keep Jesus' commandments, we are like a prison guard that watches for the escape of criminals. We watch our sinful hearts and bind its escape from God's law. We keep His commandments. When we keep His commandments, we are like a wall that's built around a fruitful garden. We use God's law to keep out of our hearts that which would bring destruction and death. When we keep His commandments, we're like a careful builder who follows the building plans and always abides by the building code. We use God's law as the right pattern we are to follow for our lives. Far too often, our obedience to the Lord is not like that, though, is it? Our obedience is like that of mischievous children or a disgruntled employee or even a a slimy attorney who's always looking for a loophole in the law. We lie to ourselves and we think that we're being obedient when we delay obedience, waiting for a time when obedience becomes more desirable to us or more convenient to us. We lie to ourselves and think we're obedient when we offer to the Lord a partial obedience. Providing some of what God's law commands, but not all of what God commands. We lie to ourselves and think we're obedient when we give begrudging obedience. Obeying indeed, but not in joy. I'll never forget the time we were having dinner at someone's home and the daughter, adolescent daughter of this family 
father asked the daughter to do something, and she did what so many adolescent daughters can do. She became mouthy. And as she went off to do what her father asked her to do, you could hear her beginning to mumble as she turned away to obey her father's commands. None of you have ever experienced that before, I'm sure. And I'll never forget the father calling attention to that and calling her back to himself and looking at her and saying, obedience, obedience, true obedience is immediate, it is full, and it is joyful. Parents expect their, their children to obey when they're asked to obey, doing all that they have been asked to in that obedience, and to do so not begrudgingly, but cheerfully and respectfully obeying their parents with the right kind of attitude. And only a deep love from Jesus and a deep love for Jesus will produce joyful, obedient fruit in a Christian life. It is an obedience that submits the moment that there is conviction of sin. It is an obedience that submits to whatever God's law requires of us, no matter how much it inconveniences us. Is it, a, it is an obedience that submits and obeys joyfully and happily and cheerfully, delighting to do the Father's will. If we abide in Jesus' love, we will bear much fruit. The greater our love and admiration for Jesus, the more joy we will find in obeying Him. The more your heart apprehends the magnitude of His love for you, the more you will more joyfully submit and desire to obey His will. And this will be the fruit that you will grow in your life as you abide in His love. It's the fruit of joyful obedience. But there's a second fruit that Jesus speaks to here in this passage. What is it? Let's look together. That if we abide in Jesus' love, we will grow the fruit of what? Love for others. Love for others. Look with me at verse 12. Jesus here now moves from the general regarding, in general, his commandments. He moves to the specific in verse 12, doesn't he? This is my commandment, that you do what? That you love one another. Well, how are we to love one another? Jesus explains here as what? As I have loved you. So notice the correlation here between the last section. So how does Jesus love his disciples? He loves his disciples as the Father has loved him. So how does he call his disciples to love others? As Jesus has loved us. How has Jesus loved you? The disciples were no doubt the beneficiaries of Jesus' love, weren't they? Jesus had taught them because he loved them. He had worshipped with them because he loved them. He celebrated peace with them because he loved them. He shared meals together because he loved them. 
He manifested signs to them because he loved them, and he told them directly of his love for them. The Apostle John in this Gospel is known as the disciple who what? Whom Jesus loved. In John chapter 13, Jesus washed the disciples' feet to demonstrate for them what? The full extent of his love for them. And even in John chapter 11, we read in the story of Lazarus that Jesus, of Jesus' affection and his love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. The disciples knew the love of Jesus. Without question, they knew the love of Jesus. But what Jesus is saying here, that the greatest extent of his love, the greatest demonstration of Jesus' love, the greatest proof of Jesus' love for his disciples is found where? It is found at the cross. Jesus says this in verse 13. Look with me there in your Bibles. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is the greatest proof to the disciples that Jesus loves them unquestionably in their minds. It demonstrates for them as they see Jesus go into the cross. It establishes in their minds the motive of Jesus in going to the cross. He went to the cross because he loved them, is what Jesus is saying. Ephesians 5, verse 2, the Apostle Paul described it this way. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. The cross is the supreme demonstration of Jesus' eternal love for those whom the Father has given. And that, dear Christian, is to be our standard of love for others. Look with me in verse 14 and verse 15 as Jesus explains the result of this love. You are my friends, Jesus says, if you do what I command you. Previously in the Bible, really only Abraham and Moses were considered friends of God. But here Jesus tells his disciples that in their love for Him and their love for others, they are in fact what? They are becoming friends of Jesus. You know, Jesus could demand and command them to just obey Him. Jesus could have just said, look, you're my servants. No servant is greater than his master. And so, go in love because I tell you to. I know none of you have ever said that to you kids. I'm guilty of why do I have to do that? I'm your dad. I told you to. Go and clean your room. Jesus doesn't say that here, though, does he? He doesn't say, go in love because I tell you to. Jesus is saying, go in love because you're my friends. And as my friends, you will do what I command you to do. Well, what does it mean to be Jesus' friends? It means Jesus no longer considers us servants. Because the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. Before Jesus has come, before Jesus' arrival, the plan of God was, was not as clearly revealed. But since Jesus has come, he says here in verse 15, 
All that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So what's Jesus saying? He is saying that God has not always acted this way with those with whom He's in covenant with. But through Jesus, the plan of God's redemption becomes clearly explained and laid out and revealed to those who are His disciples. Why? Because we are His friends. Now, the temptation for the disciples here is going to be to get puffed up. So they might begin to walk around and, you know, say, hey, look. Look at me. I mean, I am loved by Jesus. I am Jesus' friend. I mean, look how wonderful I am. I am a disciple and I am the object of Jesus' love. It must be because I'm such a lovable person. What does Jesus say here in verse 16? He, he takes a pin and pops the balloon of their pride, doesn't he? Verse 16. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. The reason that you are being called to go and love others is not because you're so lovable and it's not even because you've chosen to obey me. It is because I have decided to make you the object of my love. I am choosing you to go and bear fruit. You get the privilege of being my friend is what Jesus is saying. You get the privilege of bearing fruit for me is what Jesus is saying. And this fruit is fruit that does what? Verse 16. How long does it last? It abides, doesn't it? So notice again. We abide in Christ and as we abide in His love, His fruit grows in our life and that fruit does what? That fruit is a fruit that perseveres. It is a fruit that abides. It is a fruit that weathers storms and difficulties and hardships in life. And to this end, Jesus says that when you pray, Father's going to answer you. The Father is going to give you what you need when you pray and ask Him to sustain you. The Father is going to enable you to bear fruit. You are utterly dependent upon Him. And you ought to demonstrate that dependence in your life, dear disciple, by laying upon Him all your burdens and your needs. Confessing that you are powerless and unable to bear fruit unless you're strengthened by the Father. And so it is with all this love in mind, this eternal electing love of God that Jesus bookends the teaching here and concludes this part of the teaching in verse 17 with repetition, now that it is firmly established in their minds the kind of love that they've received from the Father, verse 17, he brings it to a conclusion, these things I command you so that you will love one another. You know, how we love others 
is oftentimes a demonstration for how we view God's love toward us. If we think that Jesus' love is conditioned upon our perfect obedience, then we'll lack grace and mercy and love for others, won't we? If we think that Jesus' love is approving of any choice that we make in this life, no matter how sinful, then we'll conflate tolerance and love, tolerance with love in our relationships with other people. If we think that Jesus' love is cold and harsh, then we'll be impatient with other people while they make every effort to change. If we think that Jesus' love is merely sacrificial, then we'll allow people to trample us and not hold them accountable for their actions. If we think that Jesus' love is difficult to attain, then we'll have impossibly high standards that other people around us cannot meet. The more you understand the love of Jesus for you, the more you will in turn give that love to others thought about Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 18 where there was a servant who had his debts called in by a king and he owed that king $10 million one English translation says. And so the king calls him in and he is calling up that debt. He is calling the note on that debt. And that servant comes and he he falls upon and appeals to the king's mercy and pleads with him that he's not thrown into debtor's prison and that his family is not thrown into debtor's prison and that he will make every effort to repay the $10 million that he owes the king. And the king does what? You know the parable. In his compassion and in his mercy, he forgives the debt of that servant. And then that servant turns around and he goes out after he had been forgiven a debt of $10 million he finds one of his fellow servants who owes him a few thousand bucks and he grabs him by the collar and he shakes him and says you better repay me every nickel that you owe me and you better do it right now and that fellow servant doesn't have it and he pleads with them, I'll get the money to you, I promise. And he throws that fellow servant in a debtor's prison. The king finds out about it. Word gets back around to him that the servant to whom he forgave a debt of $10 million threw in the debtor's prison a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand bucks. The king tells him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You threw the man in the prison. Then Jesus concludes the parable by saying, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your what? Heart. 
You see, the reason that we extend mercy and grace and love to others is what? How can we not as Christians? We are obligated as Christians to extend mercy and grace to other people. We are obligated as Christians to love others. Why? We've been forgiven a debt that we can never pay to the Lord. And Jesus made full atonement for my sin and for yours. He canceled the record of debt that was held out against us. And how dare we, Jesus is saying in Matthew 18, withhold that grace and forgiveness to others. Now you might be thinking to yourself right now, Pastor, Jesus is an impossible standard of love for me to build my life Pastor, I, I have my theology all sorted out, and I know that Jesus is fully man, but He was also fully God. And so because He was fully God, He was able to love in a way that I'm not able to love. I mean, the really difficult people in His life, Pastor, He just must have set aside His humanity a little bit and leaned a little more heavily on His divinity, enabling Him to love the most difficult people around him. Jesus knew from all eternity, Pastor. He knew from all eternity those whom the Father had given him. So it was no surprise when disciples departed from him and even when he was betrayed and even when he was denied. You don't know the hurts I've received you don't know the prickly people in my life. You don't know the offenses that were sinful and unforgivable. Dear Christian, the standard of love that we're called to is not the best of fallen humanity. That is not our standard of love, is it? It is not the best that humanity has to offer. The standard of love that we are called to as, as Christians is divine. It is humanity redeemed. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who enables us and empowers us to love as He loves. So since we've been loved, we love. Since we've been forgiven, we forgive. Since we've been given grace, we in turn would do what? We give grace. We abide in Jesus' love. We will bear much fruit. We will grow the fruit of love for others. And we will grow the fruit of joyful obedience in our life. A few years ago, our family went out to Baker, Florida. You know where Baker is? No, you don't. It's out in the middle of nowhere due northwest of Crestview. Do you know where Crestview is? Probably not. It's right off I-10 as you travel across the Panhandle of Florida. And in Baker, Florida, there is a farm called Brooks Farm, and every spring, Brooks Farm has a strawberry harvest. And I'll never forget, we went with another family. Jean Marie was 
pregnant with Hannah, and we went with little Cece, and we went to Brooks Farm in Baker, Florida, and we plucked all the strawberries that we could get our hands on. And there seemed to be an endless amount of strawberries. Remember little Cece walking through? I mean, she didn't just bother plucking strawberries. She ate any strawberries she felt like. Right off the bottom. We got home with quarts and quarts of strawberries, and Jean Marie took them into the kitchen, and she cleaned them, cut them up, and she did what you do with strawberries from the farm, and that's what? You freeze them. Yeah, you preserve them. You preserve those strawberries so that you can use them later, and that's what we did. And we enjoyed strawberries from that farm for about a week, I think. <laughs> We went through them pretty fast. I want you to imagine our church like that strawberry field, deeply rooted in the love of Jesus, diligent to remain connected to the vine that his love might flow through us, and the joy that having that kind of love brings to other people as they come and partake of the fruit of this church. How might, that, how might that glorify God? How would that be a blessing to us? How sweet that would be that we as Christians in this church right here at New Covenant are diligent and abiding in His love that His love might flow through us that we might have his sweet, loving fruit of His grace and mercy to share with others. That's the kind of church that I want to be at. What about you? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have promised that if we abide in Jesus' love, we will bear much fruit. Fruit that is not temporary. Fruit that does not rot but fruit that lasts, fruit that abides. We pray, Lord, that you would renew in our hearts afresh each and every day your love for us. Enable us to persevere in that love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.